Let's hear God speak to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We have been found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Him he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jamie. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name's Blake Randolph. My wife, Grace, and I lead a community group in our church, and we get to serve in, in several other ministries. Uh, I sometimes lead worship up here too, so you might see me in a couple of weeks with a guitar. I won't do that today. That would be kind of weird at this point in the service. So um, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for, thanks for being here today, especially if you're visiting us today and even more especially if you're visiting and you're, you're not really sure what you think about Christianity or about Jesus or just about church in general. I'm really glad that you're here, really honored that you would... Um, be, be brave enough to come and visit church this morning and that we would be the church that you would do that with. So thank you so much. Um, so I'm gonna get in pretty quickly here, but before we do that, um, let's pray together. I would love to pray for all of us. Would you, would you please be kind enough to pray for me? Pray. Father, we, um, we need your help this morning to to believe um, not just with our minds, but with all of our hearts and our souls, something that, um, that seems so extraordinary and seems so um, impossible, I think, in the, the sort of wisdom or the, the intellect uh, of, of the world that we're so used to just living in. It seems crazy to think that um, somebody could be raised from the dead. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just help us to set our mind on truth, that you would open up our eyes and, and reveal the beauty of Jesus raised from the dead for our sins, for us. We ask it in your name. Amen. So we've, uh, we've been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians for a while. If, if you're just joining us, that's what we do typically. Um, when we preach, we just preach through a book of the Bible. And we've been in 1 Corinthians for quite a while now. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's actually a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church um, 2,000 years ago or so. Um, this church was in a city called Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians. And through this letter, Paul has been addressing a ton of issues and misbehaviors and questions that this church has been living in. And he's using the story of Jesus to address and correct those misbehaviors and all these questions that they have, right? They've got uh, divisions in their church. They've been plagued with uh, members um, living in sexual misconduct, 
Um, their members have been competitive with one another. They've been confused about how to follow Jesus after they've come out of whatever they were living in before. They're like, what do we need to leave behind? What do we need to like, can we still be married if we're Christians? Can we still eat uh, meat if we're Christians? Like all of these questions that they're plagued with. Um, and on top of that, just some bad teaching. And Paul has been addressing all of these things with the gospel through the book. Um, we're getting towards the end of the book. There's only 16 chapters in this book, so we're in the second to last. And Paul's kind of wrapping up the teaching part of the book here, for the most part. Last week, Pastor Pat Robinson, he showed us how coming back to the good news of Jesus Christ, that's what we in the church call the gospel. So if you've heard that word gospel before, that means the good news about Jesus Christ. The word gospel just means good news. All right, the story of Jesus is where Paul has landed the plane because that's actually where he took off at the beginning of the book. And the whole gospel is actually the story of the whole Bible. That's why we have Old and New Testament in this book and why we read them as Christians. The whole Bible is really about Jesus. But Paul has picked out a couple of the, like essential parts of that story um, to teach these Corinthians how to live. So Paul's uh, essentials of Jesus' story that uh, Pat walked us through last week, um, is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day of his burial. And there were witnesses to him being raised from the dead. And Paul points out to them, he calls them back to the fact that actually all of these people that he's writing to, this church in Corinth, they've already said yes to that story. So he said, you've stood in, you've received, you've affirmed this gospel, right? This is what you believed, Corinthians, don't forget it. He's picked out the cross and the resurrection as two essentials because they are essential. If you want to give like a five-second version of the gospel, you could say Jesus died for our sins and he rose to give us new life. That's like the quick version. So they are essentials, but he's also picked them out really uniquely because he's built the whole letter based off of these two things. He starts with the cross beginning in chapter one, and he's ending here with the resurrection. Chapter 15, really after verse 11, is all about the resurrection, right? These two events frame up uh, Paul's teaching for the Corinthians because I think in Paul's mind, they frame up all of our life in Jesus. Here's a quote from a theologian, a British theologian named N.T. Wright. And he's talking about the importance of these two events. What, what do they mean for us if we say yes to Jesus? He says, they, the Corinthians, need to understand in particular that through the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, there has burst upon the cosmos or the creation, a new world order, a totally new way of life, which confronts the powers of the present world with the news that their time is up. So we can't just live in the same old world order that we used to live in before we said yes to Jesus. You've got to be new now, right? Cross and resurrection mean that that old way of living is done for, right? And in Corinth and in our day and age, really, I think for any time period that anybody has ever been a Christian ever, right? The temptation is to confess Christ, say yes to Jesus, but then continue to live in that old world order to kind of like have your, your feet on one foot on land, one foot on sea kind of thing. You're just not sure which world you're going to fully live in and give yourself to, right? And Paul is calling them to live firmly and fully in life as new creations, right? He begins with the cross by telling them that in the cross, God's wisdom and power is displayed through Jesus Christ being crucified for our sins. He calls the cross the wisdom and power of God. What is wisdom, right? 
for, for many of us, I think the word wisdom will conjure up images of just being really smart, people that wear glasses, I don't know. Um, but wisdom is not just about intelligence in the Bible. Wisdom means more than intelligence. It does mean knowledge, but it means like a personal lived out knowledge that shows us how to embody understanding that leads to flourishing in God's presence. Let me read that one more time. That was a lot. Wisdom is personal knowledge of how to embody understanding about God that leads us to flourish in God's presence. If we were looking at the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which is a book that people call a wisdom book, right? In the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs is not really philosophical, but it's wise because it's about a father teaching a son how to live out his love for God, his worship of God, and a type of life that is like formed around love and worship and the truth of God. Wisdom in the Bible is letting your love of Jesus bleed into every part of your life. And it leads to a life that's well cultivated under God's protection and care. The Bible calls Jesus the wisdom of God, right? Because Jesus perfectly embodies that character, fully submitting his life to the will of God the Father so that every part of who he is just bleeds with, just like exudes love for God and submission to him. And the strange and weird wisdom of Jesus, I think it's strange to the Corinthians and it's gonna be strange to us too, right? That Jesus would die for the sake of his enemies, that he would come and then just die for the sake of his enemies. It seems weak to the world. It seemed weak to the Greco-Roman world, the Greeks and the Romans that the Corinthians were surrounded by, but it actually, in Paul's mind, shames the wisdom of the world, all of the ways of the world, just like N.T. Wright spoke to us, right? It's a, a sign that the power and wisdom of the old world is up. It's over, right? And it opens our eyes to see the deeper things of God and the better way of living, okay? So that's how he began the book, and now the ending, Paul is saying that the very same thing, the cross, is being justified as truly wise, and truly powerful because of the resurrection, right? The way of Christ, so every practical thing that Paul has talked about through this whole book, if you've been with us for more than a couple of Sundays, there's been a lot of different issues that Paul has been writing them to, to them about, right? And Paul is saying all of that practical stuff, all of that lived out wisdom is actually foolish and isn't actually powerful if the resurrection of Jesus hasn't happened. So today we're gonna to look at how Paul makes that argument and what he has to teach us instead, right? The Christian life is not, the Christian life is upside down, actually, and it is shameful and it is powerless if the resurrection hasn't happened, right? The spirit of the day, the old world order, that's still powerful and wise if Christ hasn't been raised. Here's the issue. So Paul says, how can some among you say that there's no resurrection? And it seems like in Corinth, there's a group of these Corinthian believers that are struggling with the idea of people being raised from the dead in general. So they've said yes to Jesus being raised from the dead, but then they're coming right back around and saying, no, human beings can't be raised from the dead. Resurrection doesn't happen, right? And I, I think I get the sense that they just haven't thought through all of the consequences of that. And Paul's coming back and saying, guys, what? That is absurd to say human beings can't be raised from the dead, but Jesus, God as a human being, God in the flesh, was raised from the dead and just the rest of us won't be, right? Right, and there's a lot of different cultural kind of things in their context that might have led them to this belief, that might have influenced them away from a belief in resurrection, 
right? There were probably in Corinth uh, followers of the philosopher Plato, and Plato believed in reincarnation, not resurrection, or uh, the philosopher Aristotle, who didn't believe in the afterlife. Um, There was a group of kind of popular philosophers called the Sophists, and most of the time they were atheists or just didn't have religion really. They just kind of used philosophy and religion to make their point. There were Jews who are of the group of Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection, but there's other Jews called the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection. Pagan followers of Greek and Roman gods believed in an afterlife, but people didn't really come back from the afterlife unless you're like Hercules or something. And really even then that's just for your own glory. That's not like everybody's coming back from the afterlife, right? Um, There were materialists, there were pagans, there were philosophers and For all of these groups of people, except for the Pharisees maybe, the resurrection of human beings seems kind of ridiculous. And I think the church in Corinth was experiencing the pressure of like, the rest of the world is saying this is dumb. So maybe maybe it is dumb. Maybe it's not true. So we can't say with certainty exactly what influences had crept into the church in Corinth, but it's gotten to the point where some of them have said, there is no resurrection of the dead, right? Paul's just testified in verses one through 11 of this chapter, that the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus. That according to the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, the Messiah, Jesus, the chosen one of God who would save us from our sins is supposed to be resurrected from the dead. So we don't get to drop that belief in Jesus's resurrection and still be a part of the stream of biblical faith. We're a different religion at that point, right? So we have enough biblical evidence and theological evidence to say, okay, Jesus' resurrection is happening, but Paul is going to carry the case even further and say, you can't just confess Jesus and not also confess the resurrection in general, right? You have to have both, right? The logical consequence of their belief is really simple. If human beings cannot be raised from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised either. By denying that human beings can be resurrected, they have also contradicted the faith that they received and stood in, according to verse 1. It's absurd to confess Jesus as raised, but deny the possibilities of the resurrection, right? So that's the logical, the logical consequence of the fact that they've just denied resurrection. And Paul's going to use that logical consequence to then begin this long study of the, the resurrection of Jesus and how important it is for us. And so the, the logical consequences leads us into some theological consequences, some consequences about the belief that we have in God or our faith, okay? So that's where we're going to camp out today. We're going to look at what does Paul have to teach us about Jesus's resurrection in the negative first and then in the positive, right? So here's our logical truth, right? If human beings can't be raised from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because he was fully human and fully God. Here's the results of that and why the resurrection is the most important thing. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we will just die. That's point number one. Romans chapter six, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is going to raise us from the dead just as he raised Jesus. But if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then the spirit who lives in us isn't going to raise us from the dead. We're just gonna die and we might cease to exist or we might just have a long sort of like afterlife on a cloud somewhere like you've seen in cartoons. Something like that is gonna happen, right? But we might as well throw out the entire book of Revelation and a whole bunch of other parts of the New Testament. Second is this, if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain, we are liars and we worship a false God. The first, just to clue you in, the first half of this is gonna be um, a little depressing. But we'll turn it around, we will, right? 
Um, so earlier in verses one through 11, Paul's been talking about the essentials of the faith, right? And he said that we have confessed that Jesus is raised from the dead, right? So a part of their confession and an essential part of our confession all the way to the year 2023 has been that Jesus raised from the dead. In our church, we pretty frequently recite the Apostles' Creed, which is just like this really old statement of the essentials of Christian faith, right? It's like 1,800 years long. We've been, as a church, across the world reciting the Apostles' Creed. And it says both that Jesus is raised from the dead and that we will be also. And so if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we've been confessing a lie for 1,800 years. And we'll confess a lie next week when we baptize people and recite the Apostles' Creed, right? We've built our faith in God around a lie about God. And if you build your faith around a lie about who God is, then you're worshiping an idol. That's a false God. So the stakes are not low here. If Christ is not raised, your sins are not forgiven and you're still under the power of death. This is an interesting one, right? Because we always say Jesus died for our sins, right? And that's appropriate to say, that's right. Jesus did die for our sins. He was the substitute, the sacrifice for our sins to set us free from them. But Paul seems to say in this passage that without the resurrection, that forgiveness, that dying for our sins, it's not complete. It's not effective. How do we know that Jesus was actually a spotless and perfect sacrifice? How do we know that the cross is effective? How do we know that the power of sin has been defeated? Well, we know those things because Jesus was raised from the dead. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to his friend Timothy that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, talking about Jesus' resurrection. That word vindicated also means like justified or proven, right? Jesus was proven as innocent. He was proven as God. He was proven as faithful because death had no power over him, right? Jesus was crucified by the Jews and the Romans as a sinner and a blasphemer and a criminal, right? But his resurrection vindicates him by the spirit. The Bible all throughout links sin with death, like back to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. And in the second chapter of that book, God tells Adam, if you sin, you will die. If you break my commandments, death is the consequence. So from the very beginning in the Bible, death and sin are uniquely linked together. And Jesus has power over death because he had no sin. He was sinless, right? Death has power over me and you because we are sinners, but Jesus had power over death because of his innocence. But if Jesus isn't raised, he's not vindicated as innocent, and his death is just actually the death of another criminal. The Romans were right. Paul, in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, he uses uh, the word vain. Or some, some, some of our translations might say empty or futile. Right? Vain, empty, or futile. The Greek word that he uses there is a word matayos. Matayos is interesting. It's the same word that the Jewish translators of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, right, eventually everybody in the world speaks Greek. And so they're going to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And the Jewish people that translated the Old Testament into Greek, they picked the word matayos to translate this word in the, Greek, in the book of Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word is havel. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, havel or habel is a word that means vain or empty or fleeting. And it's the, the word that the author of Ecclesiastes uses to describe everything about what it looks like to live in the fallen world in the old world order, right? 
It actually means mist or vapor or cloud. And Ecclesiastes is saying, right, everything under the sun, everything in the fallen order of the world is actually just mist. It blows away with the wind. It's vain. It's not long lasting, right? It's futile. And in Paul's mind, if Jesus isn't raised, then we're actually still prisoners to life under the sun, to that same kind of vain, blowing in the mist sort of life, right? We're still trapped under the curse. Life is vain and empty and fleeting. It's like mist. Our sins are not forgiven. We're still bound by the powers of the devil and the curse. Number four, if Christ is not raised, your hope is only in this life. And the way that we live our lives as Christians is foolish, right? That goes back to the first chapter, right? Paul says that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if we're still perishing, then uh, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness. And the way that we live our lives in the way of the cross, following the way of Jesus, is foolish too, right? Those who suffer as Christians, those who fight to be disciplined and obedient with their lives, those who work hard for the sake of the gospel, Ben Hill, our pastor who works hard for the sake of the gospel, pitiable and foolish because there is no wisdom in the cross without the resurrection. Can we sit in these four truths, these four depressing truths for just a moment, right? How often, and this is for me too, how often do our hearts really cling to the resurrection of Jesus as this thing that, that sets the stakes this high, that fills all of our life with meaning? I don't know if I could count on more than one hand in the last month how many times I felt like the stakes were that high and I really sat under that truth. If we decide that the resurrection doesn't matter or that it didn't happen, that Jesus didn't come back from the dead, right, then we should probably give up on this whole Christianity thing in Paul's mind. We should go home. There are better self-help stories and methods. There are better self-actualizing stories and methods out there in the world if Jesus isn't the king of all creation, if he hasn't been vindicated and raised from the dead. But, friends, if we believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened, that it is central to everything that we believe and everything that we are as Christians, even if we don't believe it perfectly, and we never ever will, because my faith isn't going to be perfect and neither is yours, right? Then we need to perk up and listen to these next four things, right? Because the negative side of those consequences of not believing in Jesus' resurrection actually implies a positive side, right? If the negative is true, then let's look at the positive, right? What if Christ is raised? Listen to this and consider these truths. If Christ is raised, our current way of living is wise because our hope is not only in this life. We actually have the only and right way to live. Jesus actually has the words of life, his commandments, his gospel. We can look at the life laid out in Corinthians, right? And that life that Paul's been instructing them about, not about competition, not about looking wise or great in the world's eyes, sacrificing even our rights, friends, Americans, sacrificing your rights for your neighbor, using the gifts that God has given you to build up a kingdom that doesn't belong to you. It's not about your ambitions. Submitting your bodies, submitting your sexuality, submitting your gender to God's will, seeing our marriage or our singleness as a gift and a calling, extending hospitality to the poor, using our finances for the sake of others instead of piling up wealth just for ourselves. The list could go on and on. These are the things that Paul has been teaching the Corinthians, right? 
And no matter what the spirit of the world says about our life, we actually have confidence to know that that way of life is true and wise, right? It's not just smart. It's not just savvy. Actually, a lot of those things in the ways of the world are not gonna be savvy. It's not savvy to just like give your money away, right? Or your time away. But it's wise in the biblical sense, that sense of what brings true human flourishing in the presence of God, that sense of living the way that we were created to live. That's what wisdom actually is. Everything that Jesus says, every claim that he makes on our lives actually really deserves our obedience. Let's move on. If Christ is raised, we speak the truth about God and our faith is full of meaning. Our life lived struggling with imperfect faith to be imperfect image bearers of Jesus is full of meaning. Hope will not put us to shame, Paul says in Romans chapter five. We speak the truth next week when we recite the Apostles' Creed. We can say it confidently. If Christ is raised, our sins are forgiven and death has no power over us in Christ because his innocence was vindicated by the resurrection. He is a spotless and perfect lamb who though he was slain still stands and is worthy. And he is giving us that same innocence. He is gonna be the one that vindicates us by his own innocence. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So every time in the gospels, if we're reading through the first four books of the New Testament, all the time Jesus says, go away, your sins are forgiven or your faith has healed you, right? Every time he does that in the gospels, that's true if he's been raised from the dead. He actually has the power to forgive sins. And he has the power to forgive your sins. If Christ is raised, we will be raised too. Not a spirit on a cloud afterlife, not just living in Elysium or in whatever other pagan versions of heaven there are, right? But an actual new creation, right? That dignifies our lives in this creation as well. Our bodies, the natural order of the world, the natural way of the world, creation, right? It's not an accident. It's not something that we get to shrug off. Jesus took on a body and he saw fit to be raised in that same body, right? It's something that God has intentionally called worthy of renewal, your bodies, the world around you. So we get to treat our bodies. We get to treat the world around us, other people's bodies, the natural world, also like they're intentionally worthy of being recreated because of the resurrection of Jesus. So we will be raised too. Resurrection is not just funeral platitudes. It's not just cliches we say to somebody like, oh, they're gonna be in a better place, right? They will, that's, that's true, but it's also like the resurrection is more than just cliches. It's more than just something we say, right? Our resurrection is real because of Christ's resurrection. Our hope is not just for this life, right? As we read more in this chapter, it's a long chapter, chapter 15. It's all about the resurrection. So Paul's gonna go into more and more detail. He's gonna get deeper as we read along. But I think it might be helpful to just sit for a moment at the beginning here, talking about the resurrection, and just ask the Holy Spirit, like, Spirit, help us to believe that you can renew us in Jesus Christ, right? That the things in my life that feel dead right now actually have hope because of the resurrection, Right? When, we, when we talked, when we spent weeks uh, reading about the spiritual gifts, Paul, Ben asked us to pray every week, like, Spirit, we need you. Spirit, make me more dependent on your gifts, right? And I think it could be helpful for us to do the same thing with the resurrection. Spirit, help me to be dependent on the resurrection. Show me how true it is. 
Paul's gonna say in his next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, spoiler, um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, it's died, and the new has come, it's resurrected. So what do we, what do, we do with all this truth, the four things that we just read? I think the first thing that we do is we realize that we need the hope of the resurrection now and every day and forever. This has been true throughout all of history. Like we've never really lived in a world that is full of just hope all the time, right? But think particularly about the last 10 to 15 years of our world, world story and the sort of like crisis of hope or of just like knowing what in the world is going on that we've been living in, right? I think especially in the West, especially in America, where things feel stable for the most part, we've, we've had this belief that there's a solution out there to everything. We'll like get a stimulus check and that'll solve it. We'll like wait for the next presidential election and like things will get figured out. We'll wait for Congress to pass some legislation or like let's just like get our best scientists on it or our best economists on it and stuff will get sorted out, right? But that narrative, that hope in the world is about getting it figured out, that human beings just have the answer. That narrative seems a little silly after like 2020, right? Or after like 2008, right? So we can't really put our fingers on all of the things that are influencing us, on all of the solutions to the problems that the world has. And guess what? We're not meant to, right? The Bible starts with this weird story of how, how silly it is for human beings to try to build heavenly places out of dust, right? The Tower of Babel is in Genesis chapter 11, and it's the story of these people all coming together, and they make bricks out of dust, and they try to build a tower all the way to heaven to get heaven down to earth. And it doesn't work because it's silly, and so that story of like, we've got the answer, we've got the solution, we've got the hope just in human ingenuity, that's silly too. And that's okay, right? Psalm 60 verse 11 says that vain is the salvation of mankind. Futile, hevel is the salvation of mankind. So what if hope actually isn't out there in the world or in the spirit of the day or in human ingenuity? That's okay because we have an answer in the resurrection. There's this document called the Heidelberg Catechism and a catechism is just a way that we as Christians like state our faith and then like train ourselves in what we believe. And it has, it starts with this question. What is our only hope? That's the question that this catechism starts with. And here's its answer. I'll read it for you. We need this. this, is, this the resurrection makes this true, friends. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That hope, the Heidelberg Catechism's answer to question number one, that's real because Jesus is alive. There is a living God. He knows what's going on. He gives us hope, right? We don't have to figure it out for ourselves. The resurrection also calls us to follow Jesus in faith and own obedience. There's this pastor up in New York City um, named John Tyson. And I don't, I don't listen to everything that he does, but he's got this one quote that I just like cannot get off my mind because I think I need it so much. I tend to be this kind of way. He says, resonance is not obedience. Let me explain what that means, right? I think not a lot of us, especially if you like have been in church for a while, have been coming to our church for a while, not a lot of us will be like, nah, resurrection is dumb. It's not true, right? Maybe not a lot of us will disagree with the four things, the four positives or the four negatives that I read for us earlier, right? But will we walk in obedience is the question at that point. Or will we just resonate with them? 
will we just like kind of podcast that truth and like get a fix on something cool and think about it for a minute and be like, that was cool. I'll leave a good review on the resurrection and just move on to the next thing. Like, are we gonna let it shape our lives as new creations? Are we gonna let it sort of change the way that we think about the things that we're gonna about to do, the, our behavior? Can we walk in the wisdom of God, right? There's a Wall Street Journal article that this man named James, this journalist named James Martin wrote. And this is the Wall Street Journal, right? It's not a Christian, a Christian periodical. And he says this about Easter, about resurrection, right? If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, everything changes. In that case, you cannot set aside any of his teachings. Any of his teachings. Even the ones we don't like. Because a person who rises from the grave, who demonstrates his power over death, and who has definitively proven his divine authority, needs to be listened to, friends. What that person says, Jesus, demands a response. In short, the resurrection makes a claim on you. And I just want us, I just want us to like feel the weight of that claim. Your faith is not going to be perfect. Mine isn't either. I'm not always going right? The last month, could I count on five fingers the amount of times I was like, yes, the resurrection is going to make me obey today? Like, maybe not. I don't think about that often, but I think I need to. I'm, I'm calling to myself to, right? Our obedience to the whole letter of Corinthians, our willingness to walk in biblical obedience to God at all depends on the resurrection and whether or not it makes us a new creation. Do we worship a living God or do we just want a dead religion? When we check the box marked Christian, when we fill out a survey about our faith, like, is that real? Are we just like giving ourselves a title? Pat said it perfectly last week, Pastor Pat Robinson. He said, not many of us will deny the resurrection outright. That is what I'm trying to say. Not many of us are gonna say no to that just outright. But we might functionally deny it. We might just live like it's not that important. But what would it look like to live every part of our lives to use our house or our finances or our family or our school, to give our career or our sexuality or what we watch or our time or our dreams, right? What, what would it look like if we viewed all of those things as things that the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus has a claim on? How much could our lives look like a garden when we submit to the living God? And I wanna end with this for, for all of us in the room. This is a sort of object lesson quickly. So in the, in the book of John, in the gospel of John, um, which is a story about Jesus's life, right? It ends with the resurrection, like, like it, it should. And in John's account of the resurrection, he gives this story that's not in the other gospels about a woman named Mary uh, from a city called Magdala. And Mary Magdala's story makes a lot better sense when we look at the way that the Bible begins. So in Genesis chapter three, um, God is in a garden with Adam and Eve, the first humans. And these first humans have just sinned, have just broken God's rules. And they hear God. They hear the sound of God. I don't know what it sounded like, but they hear God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. So think about how crazy that would be to just hear God walking around in a garden. Um, and they hear God, and because they've sinned, they get scared and they hide from God. And he has to call them out and they're still hiding, and he has to kind of like convince them, coax them to come out, right? And in the, the story of the resurrection in the Gospel of John, John is, is using the real events of Mary Magdala's story to point us back there 
and to show us a better way. So Mary is in the garden outside of Jesus's tomb. So there was a garden around his tomb. And the tomb's empty. The other followers of Jesus have come and went. And Mary's, Mary's left there because she's sad that Jesus's body is gone. And she doesn't know that he's been raised from the dead. So she's weeping. And Jesus comes to him. And she at first thinks that he's a gardener. She's just like crying. She's distraught. She's not really sure what she's seeing here. But at the point that um, the risen Jesus calls out her name and says, Mary, she, she clings to him, John says. She turns and she clings to the risen Jesus, right? Which is a full, full-on flip, a full-on reversal to what Adam and Eve did. When they heard God in the garden, they ran and hid from him. But Mary, Mary is our example, friends, of what do we do when we hear the call of the resurrected Jesus? Like, if you hear him calling your name this morning, I do, I think, um, what, do we, what do we do with that? We have to turn and we have to cling to him, right? We can't hide from him anymore. He's come to us. He's calling our name. So this morning, I think I just want to end with that invitation, right? Like if you've believed in Jesus for a really long time, but you've just kind of forgotten about how beautiful the resurrected Jesus is, maybe hear him calling your name this morning and just turn back and cling to him and follow him. And if you, don't know, if, the, if you don't know what you believe about Jesus and the idea of, of God coming and becoming a human and then raising from the dead just sounds silly to you, like maybe be invited to hear that there is a God who's real and he did actually come and die for our sins and he is actually raised from the dead, he's alive. And on top of all of that stuff, even better, he's calling your name. So just, just have an open spirit to that. Let's cling to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Would you stand and pray with me as we close?